As we prepare for the reading of Scripture this morning, let's pray. Oh, loving God, thank you for that precious gift of your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that descends upon your gathered people, and we pray it would be by that Spirit now that our minds are illumined, our ears would hear your word to us this morning, our bodies would respond in faith and discipleship in acts of love. Come, Holy Spirit, come with Pentecostal power and speak to us again through your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 and 12 through 21. The coming of the Holy Spirit, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They're filled with new wine. Peter addresses the crowd. Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, y'all tripping, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is not what was spoken through the, the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall be, see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this month of May, we are looking together at the question, why as a people we gather? This month of May, we are gathering as a congregation in two new ways. First of all, we are gathering remotely through brand new live streaming equipment that is getting premiered this month of May. 
This is also a month when we are re-entering our sanctuary with some of us gathered here in person for the first time in more than a year. It's a time of gathering, a time of re-entry, and so it seemed to me an excellent time to look at the question of why we gather. What's the purpose for sanctuaries like this? Why do we come together as believers as one, in person and remotely? Why do we gather? Well, three weeks ago, we looked in the book of Ezra at how God's people gathered in that book to lament and to praise God. They gathered for worship. Two weeks ago, we looked at how God's people gather in spaces like this one to savor and celebrate the preciousness of God's Word. Last week, we looked in the prophet Isaiah of how God's people gather for mission, gather to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly out in the world and sense and know that call here in spaces like this one today. I want to look at how God's people gather because God's Word so often speaks to a people. God's presence so often comes down to a people when they are a people gathered. When God descended at Mount Horeb, you'll recall to give God's people the Word through the commandments and statues and ordinances. It wasn't just Moses gathered at Mount Horeb when God came down in thunder and lightning and gave that precious gift of God's Word. It was a people gathered to whom God descended. We read in the book of Numbers how God instructed Moses to gather at the tent of meeting, not just himself, but instead to pull 70 elders of the people at the tent of meeting. And then when God descends, when God visits this gathered group, God takes some of the spirit that was on Moses and spreads it to all those 70. They were a people gathered and the spirit visited that people gathered. In the book of Nehemiah, we read how people came together in a large square in Jerusalem, and at that gathering, God spoke to a people through the reading of the Mosaic law and through its interpretation, and people wept, and they shouted for joy. It was like God's Word was speaking right to their hearts, and they were a people gathered. Now, sometimes God can speak to a person when they are alone, as God did to Moses through the burning bush, or God did to Hagar when she was alone in the desert and had had to leave her son Ishmael temporarily behind. Sometimes God speaks to us when we are alone, but time and again God acts and moves and speaks when a people are gathered. And today we look at one of the most famous time God speaks to a people gathered in the New Testament. We look at the great story of Pentecost from Acts 2. And just before Christ, who had risen, ascended into heaven, he told the disciples on Mount Olivet that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and finally to the most remote parts of the world. 
And the disciples then went to Jerusalem. And we read in Acts 1 how they gathered in an upper room, some 120 of them gathered and included not just male disciples, but the book of Acts makes clear female disciples as well, including Mary, Jesus' own mother. And there they stayed in that gathering place, that upper room. And then a great festival of gathering took place. Pentecost or Shavuot or Feast of Weeks. This was one of the three major festivals in Jewish tradition of the practices of Jewish time where people would gather from all over the region of ancient Palestine. Observant Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and there they would gather. For Pentecost they would gather as farmers brought their first fruits and presented those to God. This was a grand gathering festival. Pentecost. Well, at this Pentecost described in Acts 1, at this gathering in the upper room, the Holy Spirit descends on that people gathered. It comes with a sound like a rushing wind that recalls the wind that was over the waters creation that recalls the wind that went to Elijah when he was on Mount Horeb and then that voice that spoke like a still small voice or the sound of pure silence. Tongues of fire appear over the disciples that recall how God spoke to Moses through a burning bush and also recalls that pillar of fire that led the people of God through the wilderness. And the disciples begin to speak in other languages. The Spirit gives them ability. People from some 15 different regions of the known world all heard God's wondrous deeds proclaimed in their own languages and all from Galileans. And not only does the Spirit equip each one of the disciples individually with a new language with which to praise their God, but the Spirit accomplishes something even more remarkable. The Spirit takes these Galileans and connects them up with Jews from all over the known world gathered in Jerusalem who were moved by Peter's preaching, moved by the Spirit, and God binds these people together and makes them one by the power of the Holy Spirit, one community. When Peter describes to this crowd gathered exactly what had happened when the Spirit descended, he points to the book of the prophet Joel. And he notes that grand vision of a multi-generational community on which the Spirit came according to the prophet Joel and Joel's vision for the future. Peter quotes Joel saying, Your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Peter offers a portrait of this grand extended family, young and old alike, empowered and made one. And at the end of chapter 2, we read of the Galilean disciples together with others moved by Peter's preaching and they became one community by the Spirit. We read they had all things in common. Christians who have argued historically for forms of communism or socialism often look to this text and whether you think it's a plan for government or a plan for a smaller unit, it's clearly a vision of people sharing life together, of people acting like one large extended family sharing all things in common. 
They would gather in the temple together. They would break bread in the home. And as they ate together, they would give thanks to God with glad and generous hearts. It's a portrait of, of kin. Kin made so by the Spirit. People from different extent, from different language groups, from different regions and cultures, they share life together care for each other. We see in Acts 2, by the power of the Spirit, a disparate people are made kin. Well, in a recent article for the Atlantic magazine, David Brooks makes the argument that through history, kinship ties were not simply about your biological relationships. They were about who you chose to associate as a larger family unit bound together. He notes that for tens of thousands of years, people commonly lived in small bands of roughly 25 people who might have strong biological ties, but these bands would link up with perhaps 20 other such bands to form a tribe. So you had this lar- these biological connections with an extended family, but also kinship ties with people who you did not share a common genetic heritage, but you shared life with them, sharing life. That, anthropologists say, has a whole lot to do with the definition of kin. Traditional societies have various ways of describing it. For the Ingot people of the Philippines, if you migrate to a place together, you're kin. That makes you kin. For the Shukanese people in Micronesia, if two people survive a dangerous trial at sea, they become kin. There's a common saying among the Shukis people, my sibling from the same canoe. Going through a storm together, that makes you kin. Marshall Salines, an anthropologist with the University of Chicago, notes that kin means sharing a mutuality of being, seeing yourself as members of one another. That's what kin is about. The anthropologist Kath Weston refers to kin as family you choose. Not family you're born into necessarily or biological ties, but family you choose. Weston studied kinship ties in San Francisco in the 1980s amidst the AIDS crisis. And she noted how many gay men and lesbian women had become estranged from their biological families, and yet a way they found to cope and make it through life, we're forging new families. Weston's book was entitled, Families We Choose, Lesbians, Gays, Kinship. She noted how the gay and lesbian individuals she interviewed spoke of family as simply those who are there for you, people you can count on emotionally and materially. They take care of me, said one man of his circle. I take care of them. That's kin. Weston argued, kin in traditional societies and kin today. Well, Brooks describes joining such a kinship network himself back in 2015. He was invited to the house of a couple. They'd created an extended family-like gathering in Washington, D.C. called All Our Kids. Some years earlier, Kathy and David had had a kid in the D.C. public schools, and he had a friend named James. James often had nothing to eat and no place to stay, so Kathy and David suggested that he stay with them. 
James had a friend in similar circumstances, and those friends had friends. By the time David Brooks had joined them, roughly 25 kids were having dinner together every Thursday night, and several of them were sleeping in the basement. Brooks joined this community, and he never left. They would not only have dinner every Thursday, they'd celebrate vacations and holidays together. The adults in the clan served as kind of volunteers or coaches or advisors to the younger people. They were parental figures. They'd help them replace their broken cell phones and support them when depression stuck. When a young woman in the group needed a new kidney, David gave her one of his. They all had their biological family, some more stable than others, but they also had this forged family, this sense of kin with a group beyond their nuclear family and able to provide support a nuclear family alone could not hope to give them. Those ties of kinship. That is what we see happening in today's passage from Acts. It seems to me the Spirit descends and a people that had been left alone after their Savior departed were bound together by the Spirit Christ had promised. And the ties that bound those disciples together with Jews from all over the known world were not ties of biology. They were ties of life-sharing of gathering together, of being one larger, multi-generational community, of being like kin. Lord, Lord have mercy, do we need kin today? Do our children need kin? Do our youth need kin? We read in today's passage how 120 people were gathered in that upper room and they shared life together and then the Spirit descended upon them and it was even even bigger network of people, young and old. And today in the United States, the places where we share life, those places we call our houses, apartments and homes, they're becoming smaller and smaller. Nearly a third of Americans today live alone Less than half of children today grow up with more, with more than one parent in the household. David Brooks notes that when people immigrate to the United States from countries and cultures where people tend to live with extended families, Brooks asks them what most struck these immigrants upon their arrival, and you can probably guess what it is. What most struck these immigrants upon their arrival time and again is basically variations on a theme Loneliness, loneliness. Some of you may remember in February of 2020, just before the pandemic hit, I shared some results of a recent Cigna survey of some 10,000 people. It indicated more than half of Americans reported feeling like they were alone. At that time, February of 2020, loneliness was reaching what many health organizations called epidemic proportions, and that was a month before the pandemic hit. Lord, have mercy. But here's the good news, friends. 
Here's the good news we have been savoring each Sunday when we've only been able to gather remotely. Here is the good news that we savor today as we gather both in person and remotely. Here's the good news we celebrate now in this new form of community and held so tight through the long days of the pandemic and hold even now as so much of the world continues to suffer God's Holy Spirit descends on a gathered people and makes them kin. God's Spirit descends on us today and makes us kin. God's Spirit works in a multi-generational people and a lonely people who nevertheless yearn to know and follow Christ more fully are made one people by the Spirit. God moves in a people and makes them family a family chosen, a family forged. God gives them a common destiny in which they're saved by the love of God in Jesus Christ as we are. And God gives them a destiny of being vessels of God's salvation out in the world, of being light to the world. God brings together, we see in Acts 2, people from all manner of different people groups and languages and locations all over the known world there and brings them into a kinship network we call the church. God takes a people and through the Spirit makes us kin. As a new day is breaking in and the quarantine period is slowly being lifted, we have a golden opportunity, friends, to be the vital forged family. God has made us hungry, all of us, for an ever-deepening sense of being kin. People outside our doors are hungry for it. Let us be that kinship circle we yearn for and that God has made us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of you know it's not easy being kin because kin means you have to deal with other people. Live alone. There's a reason so many of us value our individuality so much. Other people are difficult to deal with and there are freedoms we enjoy by our individuality. But kin brought to the table, showing up for one another, it can give us a dimension of life that is so full. Where we're not alone, we aren't depending solely on our nuclear families, even in whatever form they may exist, but we know we're part of a larger unit. What in old times might have been an extended family connected up with farmhands and others, we're part of a tribe, a people made kin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being kin calls for showing up and being there for an, each other. That's one of the calls of kinship. The community Brooks wrote about in Washington, D.C. could only happen if people showed up to those dinners each Thursday night. But when they did, when they shared life together, got to know one another, were known, found their lives getting interwoven, something amazing happened. Suddenly each one was not so alone in the world. Suddenly each one, even if they came from a broken family, would know family, broad, rich, big family, that chosen or forged family we call kin. 
Well, on a recent Tuesday night, the stewardship committee of Knox gathered in the Stetson family's backyard, and you might not think of a stewardship gathering where we meet to address budgets and financial policy that it would feel like family, but that's what it was. It was like I was with my kin. It was the first time I'd gathered for any kind of committee meeting in person, and the meeting was hybrid, much like this worship service. There were some of us gathered in person and some who were connected through Zoom online, allowing everyone who wished to be a part of it. When I arrived to the Stetson's patio for this meeting, I got to see Bruce, Hugh, and Lee, and though I had often seen them on a screen over the past year, as have you, when they performed music pieces or when they read Scripture or when they did that great Lego rendering of Jesus calming the storm, but still there was something powerful to seeing them in person, seeing them down in their yard on this huge swing. It was like I was seeing my nephews, you know? They were like nephews. They are like nephews to me. I sat down not only with Jennifer, but with Doug Hoffman, whose extended family now forms a sizable part of the Knox community, and I say thanks be to God for that. Doug's parents, Beth and Terry, are two of our newest members. And even though I share no biological ties with the Hoffmans, at least that I'm aware of, sitting down at the table with Doug felt like sitting at a table with my brother, Matt Pecor was sitting there, and Matt and Mai's friendship goes, long, goes back long before I even came to Knox. And yet, during our time at Knox, since he and Linda, together with their daughters, Grace and Caroline, chose to become a part of the Knox community, they feel, well, less and less like friends and more and more like kin. So I got to sit with my brothers, Doug and Matt, as well as my sister, Jennifer. And then on the screen, I got to see Josh Lush. Now, Josh recently had a Zoom wedding that I got to officiate for. It was just with a few members of the extended family, but it still brought together people from around the nation, and they got to connect, and I got to be there. And when I looked at Josh on the screen, it was like I was seeing a brother a brother whose wedding I had recently gotten to attend remotely. And then I saw Don Payne, who was also joining us for it, and yet another brother, and not only a brother, but a wise soul. Don has been a powerful voice locally and nationally against racism, and he has been a guide and inspiration to many, including me. It was a blessing to see those brothers on the screen, to gather with others. And there was a sense right then that I was less alone than when I came. I was with my kin. You know what I mean? It was, you might not think of a stewardship meeting as thrilling. We're talking about 403Bs and 403Cs and 4501, a number of different fiscal policy questions. It might not sound like thrilling stuff to you, but it was thrilling to be there for that experience of being kin, family forged by the Spirit. Such a gift we have in Christ, friends. Such a precious gift, whether we know it in person or remotely, that the Spirit makes us one. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted this gift is one we can so easily take for granted. He wrote, this unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trotted underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It's easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christians is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God. Bonhoeffer's experience of confinement and oppression in a concentration camp would further solidify his conclusion, Christian community, it is a precious gift. God saves us, binds us together with other believers as kin. May this sanctuary be a home and a hearth where people know that truth. May the people sense and know here the words of that great hymn, in Christ there is no east or west. May they know this truth. The third verse goes like this. Join hands, disciples of the faith, whate'er your race may be, all children, all children of the living God are surely kin to me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen.